Happy New Year and welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Thanks for all the support in 2017. To kick things off in 2018, we'll have a two-part podcast with golf course architect Jim Urbina. If you don't or haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast at iTunes and rate and review us. Now, here's Jim Urbina. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, I'm joined by golf course architect, Jim Urbina. Jim, welcome on. Good morning, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Wonderful day to talk about golf. I don't know if there is a bad day to talk about golf. (laughs) Well, let's just say this is the best day to talk about golf. (laughs) Yeah. so, Jim, you you, uh, you do a lot of, um, you've done just, you know, you've had a great career so far, and you've been doing quite a bit of restoration work at a lot of high-profile places. So, I think, you know, my first question is, how do you get a club to buy in on a restoration? You know, that's always tough, because when I get that phone call, when somebody reaches out to me and asks me about, a club, a particular club, a a Greens Committee chairman, a club president, somebody who is associated with the club, they call me and ask me, what do you know about a particular golf course? Uh, Would you be interested in talking to us about it? Uh, I'm always skeptical, and the only reason I say skeptical is I'm always uh, skeptical about what the intent is. What, What is your phone call about? What is your goal And so when you ask that question, how do I get a club to buy in? You know, the first question I always ask when we get into a roundtable discussion or we gather as a group and a committee starts to interview me or ask me questions, the first question I always ask is, do you embrace history? And the place goes very quiet. And so the reason the place goes quiet is because I'm not sure that they understand my question or if they've even thought about the history that their club may be a part of. And so I figured that we ought to start with the interview by me interviewing them, if that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. You know, you want to make sure that the the committee is on the same page as you are and um, you know, kind of thinking along the same lines. I, I think that leads me into a question I, I'm always curious. It seems to be a polarizing um, topic with restoration. Do you, do you believe in returning it back to the original place or restoring intent, which might lead to moving bunkers into different places to adopt for technology? Depending on the architect 
or as Pete Dye used to always tell me, Jim, we're not architects, we're builders. <laughs> and I've, I've kind of embraced that ever since. I always think about what the club represents, what the goals are of the club, and really, if this club or a club that has asked me to, to talk about their golf course, their history, is it something that it lends itself to a restoration? Because really, not all golf courses should be restored, if that makes sense to you. And the reason I say that is because some golf courses just don't have the architectural beauty, the architectural strategy that would in, would interest me. And so when I talk to clubs and I ask them about the history, I, the reason I ask that question is because if they want to modernize it, if they want to moderate, modernize it by moving bunkers around, by changing greens, by flattening them, that, flattening them out, I generally would say that I'm not the person you should be talking to. And I would excuse myself from the interview process because of that. So I tend not to think about a golf course I'm interviewing for as a modernization project, but I tend to lean towards restoration. And I've enjoyed that the most, and I've been the most successful at it. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, with us. I, I mean, the golf courses and the era we now are. I feel like golden age golf courses are more popular than they've ever been before. Why? Why do you think that? Well, I just interviewed for a, a, a golden age um, design uh, last, uh, actually a few days ago, and one of the questions one of the committee people asked me was. Well, Jim, what can you do to this golf course to make it enjoyable for the high handicap player as well as the scratch golfer? And my answer to him was emphatically, I don't think I could do both on this golf course. And that is the golf course that I'm interviewing for because the golf course and its strategy and intent was different bunkers at different yardages off the tees with varying degrees of uh, strategy involved. So if I was interviewing for a golf course that had bunker left, bunker right in the fairway at 260 yards out, and they wanted to move bunker left and bunker right in the fairway to 280 that would be something that has no interest at all for me. But if you have a golf course that has short bunker right, medium distance bunker left, center bunker 300 yards out, additional left fairway bunker at, let's say, 490, and I'm talking about a par 5 in this sense, if you can think with me, that each one of those bunkers offers something different for every level of player. And that's the golf courses I seek out because 
before I interview for a job, before I'm, uh, before I'm, uh, I want to be considered, I want to make sure that the golf course has something for everybody. And if I could bring that out in the restoration, then I will have succeeded and I will have answered that gentleman's question that answered me, that asked me, what can you do for all levels of players? And that's what I try to seek out. But very uh, simplistic bunkering, bunker left, bunker right, as I said, does not interest me. And that's why McDonald and Rayner, uh, a lot of Ross courses, the Bobble Inc. Club that I just uh, restored back uh, in 2015 and 16 with Scott Pavelko, those are the golf courses that interest me because they have bunkers for all levels of players, but generally they get filled in because someone deems them uninteresting because they're only 210 yards off the tee. Yeah. Funny, isn't it? It is. I was, um, you know, those ones that are 210 yards off the tee provide, you know, thrill and interest for the senior or the lady golfer now where they Correct. used to be, you know, there for, you know, better players. But I, that was something I was really impressed with when I, I walked around Bobolink this summer was, um, you know, the par five that runs along the, um, what is it, the south property line that has, you know, yes. bunker yes. left, Number bunker five. right. There's a yep. center line bunker. It had, and I think you moved a green there. Am I right? The green had actually moved, was moved by another uh, architect uh, in the 80s, I believe, and I simply recaptured the essence of Allison uh, with that green site location, making it feel more consistent with the other 16 greens that had not been touched since 1922 by Allison. So, yes, you are correct in that hole. It had uh, several bunkers, each one at a different angle, each one at a different yardage off the tee, and you want to talk about a hole that embraces all levels of players, that's it. Yeah, very, very cool hole. Um, in terms of uh, with, uh, you know, restoring golf courses, and let's just say say I'm, you know, a member or I'm, a, I'm the head of a greens committee at a, you know, golden age golf course, and, you know, we want to start to, you know, get interest in restoration, and we are going to just – take the first step like what's usually what you see across courses the the smallest and easiest thing that most clubs could do to start to to show what a restoration how it could help the club and get more people to buy in you know i wish more people asked me that uh, in the interview process one of the first things that i always look at when i walk onto a golf course I mean, it's the very first thing I look at is the mowing presentation. And I've been doing that since my early days at the Valley Club of Montecito in California, which I started working on in 19, you know, 96, 95, 96. Seems like forever ago. And when I look at the mowing presentation, I can tell that it has evolved. And we can go there if you want during the interview about the evolution of golf courses. But I noticed that the Valley Club of Montecito, the way the golf course was being presented, and if we could recapture what it used to look like, and I use the term look like because I look at old aerials and ground photos, for some reason, 
Alistair McKenzie loved to document himself on the golf course. And I'm thankful for that because I have great ground photos of the Valley Club of Montecito. I have great ground photos of Pasa Tempo with McKenzie and Marion Hollins and Bobby Jones playing the golf course. So I was able to recapture the mowing presentation. And I always tell the clubs the first thing you could do, the cheapest thing you could do, is just represent how you mow the golf course. And a lot of superintendents uh, would be more than happy to try that and, and show the club what could be done to recapture the strategy and the intent of these Golden Age designs. Just mowing the grass. is It's that simple. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's one of the things you notice always when you look at an old aerial of almost every golden age golf course that hasn't been restored, you know, in the recent time is that you see that the, the mowing lines on the greens and the fairways are just considerably smaller. So, uh, you know, say in the case of like a Chicago area club where you have bluegrass rough bent grass fairways, what, what do you suggest? How do you suggest you combat that if you wanted to extend out the fairways? Every superintendent does it differently, and I generally defer to them with how they want to approach the uh, recapturing of that uh, different types of grasses, poa, rye, bent fairways versus a, a, a bluegrass rough, as you uh, described. I've had the opportunity to work at two clubs in in Chicago, uh, the Glenview Club with Brian Moore, excellent superintendent, and as you know, uh, the Bobby Link Club and uh, Scott Pavelko. I, I actually at caddied the, at Glenview for like three years too. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you would be one of many caddies. They have an excellent caddy program. <laughs> yeah. And one of the club. greatest things about the Glenview Club, not to get off track, I apologize, is that they don't they. The, there's peer pressure to walk by the membership and there's peer pressure by the membership to take a caddy. And generally you don't take a caddy. Somebody's going to be staring you down, wondering why you don't have a caddy on your bag. And for me, that's pretty impressive, but that speaks highly of the chick Evans room that they have at the Glenview club and how they support the caddy program, which I think is, is fabulous in the Chicago area, but to get back to grasses, Every superintendent does it different. Some just mow it down and let it mature and evolve into a tight grass, a rye, a poa. Some sod them out. Some sod out the lines that, that uh, I have repainted. In the case of a course I'm, that I'm restoring in uh, Long Island, New York, Rockville Links, uh, the superintendent, Luke Knutson, he uses the plugs from the fairways and spreads them out into the newly area, the newly prepared area for fairway. And within six months, he's got the same looking fairway as he had uh, prior to the, uh, to the restoration. So it's amazing um, how each superintendent attacks the, the situation differently, but really it's all grass and each one would tell you something different. He uses plugs to restore the fairways. And when you go back the next year, you'd never know where we expanded the fairways and where we took out uh, the uh, bluegrass rough. So everyone does it different. Mm -hmm. That's, um, it, it, I, 
I would love to see more people do that. And obviously sometimes you have, you have trees and poor planting yes. in the way, but yes. you know, where you can, it, it, it makes so such a difference because it adds so much strategy back to the golf course. Do you, do you... And you know, Andy, it, it, it can't be just the mowing presentation. We start with that, but really it's, it's, uh, it's, making sure the trees are uh, the trees that are planted too close to the fairways as part of my what I talk about in the evolution of the golf course. Trees that are planted too close, bushes that are planted too close, rose gardens that are planted too close, all of those things are taken into consideration before we 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 mark out and, and flag the, the new mowing lines and so that the 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 new turf areas and the new fairways have every opportunity to grow healthy grass much like the the center of the fairway has done for years and years and years. So we've talked about a uh, a handful of golden age architects already that you've you've worked on. Um, I'm curious, and it's a question I ask almost uh, every architect that comes on here. Who do you feel is the most underappreciated architect um, from the golden age? I'm um, I'm selfish in this in this statement, but. It's someone that I just think does not get enough credit, and that's Perry Maxwell and his son, Press. I think that Perry Maxwell was more than capable to be his own designer of record on many golf courses in the Midwest, which he does have his name attached to him, but it's always, it always seems to be portrayed the Midwest, or as uh, the book was uh, written about him, uh, the Midwest associate that Christopher Clouser wrote, Life and Work of Perry Maxwell, the Midwest associate. But to me, he was more than that. He was helping McKenzie create some of the coolest things in golf, uh, Crystal Downs, uh, Augusta National. He was at Pine Valley. I mean, he was in a lot of places helping a lot of architects look good. And I just wish... I just wish that he would get his due uh, or more people would talk about him because I'm fascinated by his greens and I'm fascinated what he did with the nine holes at, at Prairie Dunes and eventually what Press Maxwell did uh, with the additional nine holes. It's one of my top five golf courses. I think everybody should see it, Prairie Dunes, and I think that everybody should get a chance to to see uh, the famous greens of Maxwell, Perry Maxwell, and his, his son Press who had a, had a chance to interview before he passed away in in uh, Colorado, Press Maxwell. I learned a lot about uh, his father, Perry, and, and I just wish he got more credit. I, uh, I can't remember who I had on the podcast, but they also mentioned that Perry Maxwell, his, you know, as the most underappreciated because his career was most hindered by the Great Depression. You know, where when he really reached his height was, yep. um, you know, when the least golf course construction was happening. And if just uh, and just think if he would have been a few years earlier, the Roaring Twenties, what he could have done. Um, and not that he doesn't have something to show for his name. He does. He has golf courses out there that have his, his name on it. But people tend to want to flatten out his greens, and they want to alter his look uh, of, of the, the golf courses. And I'm like, I'm trying my best to stand up for every Maxwell I can, uh, as, as well as other architects. Uh, Dave Axlin, uh, who works for Coor and Crenshaw, 
wonderful man. He has uh, done a lot of work at Prairie Dunes. Wonderful job, and I, I I always consider him a friend, and I I I enjoy his work. He has he has done his best to protect the look of Prairie Dunes to make sure uh, nobody messes with it because people always want to kind of flatten out the greens, and that really was the character of uh, of Perry Maxwell, mostly mostly underappreciated. But anytime I uh, I'm struggling for a style of green that that uh, uh, I'd like to build. I always go back to my Maxwell roots, and I create one or two inside roll greens. Uh, I did that at Sabonic, and uh, and uh, it's something that I I enjoy. I wish more people appreciated. It's usually the external contours, the big bold external contours, get all of the kind of praise, and you know they they catch the eye. But I always am impressed with you know the great architects like one that sticks out is like how seth rayner uh used internal contours and he had these big bold external ones but these subtle spines and humps and bumps in the in the green were the ones that you know really wrecked havoc i agree i think rayner and well you're talking about one of my other favorite guys seth rayner but i think maxwell's little inside rolls were 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 underappreciated. I think the bold inside rolls of Rayner, which were much more apparent, uh, McDonald and Rayner, but uh, Maxwell, just the little things sometimes make a big difference. So, so I'm I'm assuming say say you you could transport back to 1928, we'll say, and you could have either Robert Hunter working with you, one the the Mackenzie's other famed associate, or Perry Maxwell. Who would you would you choose, Maxwell? Wow, great question. Nobody's ever asked me that. Uh, they always talk about the lead guys, and for me, I think the the guys in the background are the forgotten ones. Um, and luckily, Robert Hunter was able to uh, publish a book, The Links by Robert Hunter, which gave him credit and fame. And Perry Maxwell, uh, certainly with with Old Town Golf Club that Coor and Crenshaw expertly restored, and Prairie Dunes and some of the other places that Perry Maxwell worked on, certainly had uh, credit. But it's the guys that you never hear about. And one of the one of the group of people that you never hear about and again, I, I'm, I'm digressing, uh, going away from your question. But Perry Maxwell had a, a gentleman by the name of, um, I can't remember his name, Woods, Ray Woods. Woods was a guy that helped Maxwell create some of the best golf courses ever. And I remember interviewing Press Maxwell at the Pinehurst Club in Denver, Colorado. That's where he was a member, Press Maxwell. I asked him how they built their greens and how they would go about the greens, and he talked about the Woods brothers and how they would go out there and they would stand in the fairway and they would you know, eyeball how they wanted the green to look, and, and they would build it and talk about it. And, and I asked Press Maxwell, I said, did the Wood brothers ever survey their greens? And he said, no, they never did. All they did was just eyeball it, and if it looked like it wasn't too steep, and with the green speeds of that time, if they didn't look too steep, that they were good. And so Perry Maxwell had the Wood Brothers. Uh, Mackenzie had Robert Hunter. But who would I use? I'd probably use them both because uh, 
the more the merrier. And if your common goal with Robert Hunter and Perry Maxwell as uh, as my associate, if the common goal was the good of the golf course and the, and and uh, building 18 wonderful holes, not great holes, wonderful holes, then I'd use them both. And I'm sure that each one of them would lend their expertise at the right time, at the right place. Uh, Perry Maxwell maybe on the greens, Robert Hunter on the bunkers, which I believe Robert Hunter had all, uh, not all, but most 98% of the credit for the, of the beauty of McKenzie's bunkers because every golf course that Robert Hunter worked on, those bunkers were pretty doggone good. And uh, they're not just jigsaws, but the way they layered them, Robert Hunter had a lot to do with that. So I'd use them both. Is that mm-hmm. fair or is that a cop-out? It's kind of a cop-out, but you know, <laughs> you, you at least gave what you'd use each of them for. So I, I think it, Thank nobody, you. nobody would agree or nobody would disagree with Hunter's bunkering and Maxwell's greens. I mean, that's, you get the Bunker. best of both worlds. That's an all-star cast right there. Wouldn't so, even need Jim Urbina. You put those two guys together and be super-duper. Well, they, you know, they got to have a CEO, which, you know, Mackenzie was the CEO. <laughs> so um, McDonald was the CEO. They were both, uh, based on everything I read, they were pretty egotistical. So you, I guess you need that, don't you? Yeah, <laughs> somebody's got to be the boss. Um, well, somebody's got to be the boss. So, I, you know, in, in – You've worked with worked on you know Pasatiempo, the Valley Club. Yes. Um, yes. With uh, with Mackenzie, you know everybody loves his bunkering. You know the deceptions always talked about and the playability. What aspect of uh, Mackenzie do you think kind of gets swept under the rug? Is is but was really great about his designs. The beauty, which, as you know, he's been quoted many times in many articles any architect worth his salt and i'm paraphrasing any architect worth his salt uh, realizes that the beauty of the golf course is as important as the strategy and what better place to stand and say that statement uh than the 16th tee at, at uh, cypress point or the first tee at uh, pasa tempo overlooking the peninsula or the Valley Club of Montecito, uh, standing on the 15th green, walking over to the 16th tee and seeing the uh, Pacific Ocean. Uh, easy to say that. But really what I think that a lot of people think of a McKenzie, and I now know Robert Hunter bunker, is they think if they just build a jigsaw bunker, somehow that's a McKenzie bunker. And that is so far from the truth. One of the things I learned working at the Valley Club of Montecito is the way that Robert Hunter and McKenzie layered the bunkers and what they did. And I'd love to take you back there someday with me to the Valley club of Montecito. Andy, that'd be a lot, that'd be a lot of fun. I'd show you the layering. And I, and I realized that when I was restoring the bunkers, I thought, man, these bunkers are like fitting right next to each other, even though they're 90 and a hundred yards apart. And I started to, when I was reshaping them and so I don't forget, I had very talented shapers helping me all along the way. But let's go there sometime later in the in the interview. When I started to realize that these features, these bunkers, they weren't just jigsaws, but they were fingers that were layered on top of each other so that at the right angle and at the right uh, location in the fairway, 
one bunker would look like he was on top of the other. And the Valley Club kept doing that over and over and over on the 13th hole, on the 6th hole, on the 5th hole, on the 17th hole. And I started to realize this isn't just happenstance. They weren't just winging it out here. There was somebody standing there making sure that was the right elevation. And that's what I learned about a Mackenzie Hunter bunker, that they weren't just jigsaws and they weren't just beautiful. They were intricate. They were integral. They were attached to each other. And in certain parts of the uh, round of golf, when you stood in certain parts of the fairway, they were actually attached to each other. And the the best one I could show you is on the fifth hole at, at the Valley Club of Montecito because it's got about a 6% grade going uphill. And so the bunkers at eye level just seem to be layered perfectly. And a center, right center fairway bunker, uh, if you're standing in the right location, looks like it matches up to the right greenside bunker. And if you're on the other side of the fairway, that center bunker looks like it matches up to the left greenside bunker. And I thought, this is beyond cool. This is so much different. And every time I would laugh when uh, somebody would talk about a McKenzie bunker and just show a jigsaw, I said, if they only knew. Yeah, that's, um, I feel like that's, you know, with almost everything, there's so, so many people try, you know, McKenzie's obviously got beautiful bunkers and what happens yes. is people yes. try and mimic them. But, you know, there's something about the original and there's so much that goes into something in that, in somebody's head that's, you know, in, that nobody can really replicate that except for, you know, people that, really understand it at a, at a very deep level and you agreed know, hey this is full of mckenzie bunkers but you're missing the point and a uh i think bill core when he was on our on the podcast was talking about how you know pete Dye changed golf course architecture twice and what happened was you know after harbor town you saw a lot of courses look like harbor town but then you know the the those courses that looked like it weren't Harbor Town because they were missing that you know the the strategy and the the subtleness yes. of the die designs. Yes, yes, and I totally agree with Bill Coor. One of my someday, uh, Andy. When I grow up, I want to be like Bill Coor. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people but, would. <laughs> but the Valley Club of Montecito, I'll never forget standing on the 15th fairway, and I was restoring the upper level bunker behind the 15th green at Pasa Temple. I wish I had a photo you could put up and show, because I, the Greens chairman at the time, uh, Mr. Anderson, said, Jim, why are you restoring that one? It's so out of play. And I said, well, because that bunker is not really for the 15th hole. And he laughed at me, and I said, come on, let's go over to the 18th tee box. And I took him over to the 18th tee box, and I showed him how the layering of bunkers going up the left side of 18 at the Valley Club layered in perfectly with the right greenside bunkers and the left greenside bunkers on 15 and made the upper bunker above 15 be a part of 18. And he says, I would have never noticed that. And I said, that's why it's here. And that's the beauty of McKenzie. And you see it at Cypress Point, hole number 11. You see it at the Claremont Club in uh Berkeley, Oakland, California, that I'm working on right now. You see it at the Valley Club of Montecito. You see it at Pasa Temple. It's that layering on top of beauty 
that make McKenzie and Hunter bunkers so wonderful to restore. And, you know, that was a life lesson, and I'm so lucky to have been able to restore Pasa Tempo because it taught me a lot about scale. It taught me a lot about deception. It taught me a lot about layering. It taught me a lot about strategy. And I thought, this is my open book education on golf just by working and restoring places like the Valley Club and Pasa Temple. Yeah, it's, uh, I usually say to people that if they you know, want to get into architecture, you got to go play like a really great course, and then you'll feel enlightened. And not only play it, Andy, as you know, you have to walk it yep. from side to side, and you have to, you have to experience it from all levels. That's why I crack up. I just can't believe somebody can rate a golf course, tell you all about it in one visit. Yep. It's, These golf courses are way more complicated. The golden age golf courses are way more complicated than that. And for somebody to stand uh, uh, on the 16th green at San Francisco Golf Club, uh, a, a golf course I had a chance to restore all the greens and some of the bunkery to stand on that green and say, Oh, this green is, you know, uh, front to back or back to front and, you know, pretty good hole. They don't even understand the, the nuances of that green. And, and until you've worked on it and until you've played it a hundred times, until you've putted it in all different directions, do you understand the intricacies intricacies? And for some way, for someone to look at a golf course and one day in a four or five hour time period say, eh, that's an average golf course. I just, I cringe when I think that golf course deserves more attention than that. If, uh, if that is a fair statement to say, it deserves way more attention than that. That's, I, I think walking a golf course, you learn way more about it than, I mean, almost Golf Digest Raiders or any Raiders should have to walk courses instead of play them. Because walking them, they'll learn way more. Um, you know, walk it with a wedge and a putter, you know. Or a seven iron, my favorite club. Yeah. Because that really tells you about what is available. And, you know, every game, everybody's game is different. You know, some people tend to play the right side of the fairway versus the left. Some people tend to stay on the ground and some people hit it up the air. And I just wonder... I just wonder if, as you said, if they walk the golf course, and a lot of people don't have that time nowadays, but if they walk the golf course, got it like a, kind of like a preview before they actually played it, how much better it would be. And I think people would appreciate designs more and not just think that it's just another 18 holes with 50 bunkers. I think if they had to walk the course or say they had to walk the course twice instead of playing it, which would probably take about the same time, they'd have a lot less Raiders. Well, they'd have a, they may have a lot less Raiders and, and a lot less people visiting, you know, how many uh, people want to go around and see 10 golf courses in a day? I, I know people who, uh, I'm going to play 36 holes today or 54 holes today. And I, I think to myself, why not just give, that golf course, that first one you have, give it 54 holes of your time. <laughs> and it might be really, really good. Yep. I, I, um, I agree. It's like, I've, I've found myself, uh, you know, 
more and more thinking like, you know, you, you need to really see a place a, a few times before you really pass judgment on it because it's not fair to, you know, like, not fair. Yeah. It, especially if you're trying to compare it to somewhere where you've, you know, played six, seven times. Yes. And it's play, you play Cypress Point six or seven times because it's so beautiful and you play the golf course inland just from there, from Cypress Point once, and try to compare the two, you can't do it. No. No, there's no way. Because you'll always lean to the beauty and the six or seven times of memorable moments, and you give another golf course four hours of your time on the way. I don't know, man. It's hard for me to buy that. It, it leads me into a question, you know, with with all your extensive California McKenzie experience and how would you split 10 rounds between all the McKenzie California courses 10 rounds that's all I got yeah it's a tough one <laughs> do you that's want not fair do you want 20 uh no I'll do 10 I would say that I would play Cypress Point Twice. All right. This is I would a good play start. The, yep, that's a good start. Uh, everybody would. Uh, I'll tell you what, a lot of people would laugh and say, I wouldn't play it twice, I'd play it ten times and forget the rest of them. Yeah. But that's okay, you asked me, so I'm going to tell you. I would play the Valley Club twice. I would play Pasa Tempo twice. I would play the Claremont Club once. You got to see the Claremont Club. Have you ever seen it? You know, I made my first uh, golf trip to San Francisco this uh, fall, so I I, I got to get back out to to San Francisco. I only had uh, three days, so I I didn't get out there. Go see the Claremont Club. It's a redo of a golf course by Alistair McKenzie and Robert Hunter. Uh, some people, uh, Sean Tully, a, a, a McKenzie historian who works at the Meadow Club, would say that uh, maybe more Robert Hunter at the Claremont Club than McKenzie, but they do have a photo of McKenzie drinking a pint with Donald Ross on the ninth hole at Claremont, so he had to be there at least a little while. That's, that's <laughs> so, pretty cool. It is cool. It's a great photo. I have it up on my wall. It looks down on my on my computer. It's Ross and McKenzie with a pint with all the workers and people at, at the Claremont Club. It's great. But you've got to see Claremont for the crossing fairways, probably the only club in America that still has crossing fairways. I would play the Meadow Club once. Wonderful golf course. Great, uh, great uh, walk in a beautiful setting. You know, you've got to go to the Cal Club, even though uh, some people say uh, – well, it was an Arthur uh, A.V. McCann golf course, redone by McKenzie, redone by Kyle Phillips. But you gotta you gotta go to uh, the Cal Club. Uh, Green Hills has wonderful history. I don't know if I would stop there. Uh, you gotta go to Northwoods to play the nine holer that McKenzie did up there in the, in the Napa Valley. But I would split between Northwoods and Sharp Park, mm-hmm. and. You may ask, why Sharp Park? And many people would say, why Sharp Park? At that time, when that golf course was built, 
and it being a public golf course today, it was probably one of the coolest settings in California for golf. You could almost walk on the beach playing the two holes going to the south before they were washed away. And I've played golf there with Bo Lynx. I've played golf there with uh, the uh, group trying to uh, restore it. I played golf there with Ron Witten when we walked and shared a golf bag. And we've all stood there and thought what this place could be like, what it was like, I'm sorry, what it was like before the dike was installed. And I think everybody who's a McKenzie or at least a Golden Age architect history buff should go see Shark Park and, and stand there and think what what it was at one time in its and its in in the history of of golf architecture how cool it would be did that total 10 i think you got 10 yeah i i mean i lucked out i think northwoods uh you could you, since it's only 9 i that, i've seen pictures that place looks so cool yeah it's got you got to go yeah <laughs> see it see there's just see it. too many places i i got to go do just a, a pure mckenzie tour yep of, of the west coast it's um yep the um so um with that so that's um, my ten yeah. I'm sure everybody would tell you something different Andy you would probably come up with different numbers but that's my ten that's the beauty of golf courses everybody has a little bit different taste and everybody has yep. a little bit you know different view on what what's good and what's what's great and uh, yep. but all of them are are awesome I I was I passed tempo God I, I I've I've told some people this but. You know, that place has got to be one of, if not the most architecturally sound course that anybody can go play. Unbelievable place. And I've been lucky to be associated with uh, with Pasa Temple for 20 years. I'm actually going back there in January. We're going to continue to do some tee box uh, work. And somebody would say, well, why is the tee boxes so important? The starting ground so important? And if you've ever read in Robert Hunter's book, The Lynx, he talks about in a chapter how a golf course should start. And he said that the golf course should start and finish in the same manner, as close to the ground as possible and with the same intent. And that's, again, a paraphrase. But I, working with uh, the superintendent and, and the Greens Committee at, at Pasa Tempo, we're going to try to get some of that flavor back in the teen grounds uh, again, working there for 20 years, uh, working with the greens, expansion of the greens. Uh, it's been a treat. You are right. It's an architectural genius golf course using the Barrancas. Uh, could I have put Pasa Temple in front of Cypress Point? Probably. I probably could have played three or four times at Pasa Temple and twice at, at Cypress in the Valley Club, but I just you can't pass up the beauty of Cypress Point, but Pasa Temple has everything that any golfer would want in architectural design and strategy. And what a place, as you as you have attested to. Yeah, I, I think uh, I you know you look at it; they get so many rounds a year. But yes. if if you and and, it's, and for that's another reason why it's almost unfair to compare golf courses like that, like because. If that golf course, if it was a a, cl- a really exclusive club that got ten thousand rounds a year, 
you could do, you know, a little bit more, you know, stuff that would probably make it one of the five to 10 best golf courses in America? Well, you know, there's a point in which you have to decide. Um, and your point about being private versus public, I think the bonus about of it about it being public is more people get to experience it. Yep. And for me, the more people that get to see Pasa Tempo and Mackenzie and Hunter's genius, the better. Uh, maybe don't some maybe there's just not enough uh, exposure to other Mackenzie courses, but because Pasa Tempo is public, uh, more people get to play it. So I think it's a good thing. But yes, could you do something different? Yeah, you probably could. Uh, not much different. Uh, you couldn't change much, but man. Uh, the 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 ability for the public to play Pots and Temple, uh, what a place! And and that we were able to keep the golf course open during that whole time of restoring it, um, which was the key point. That was the key point to this. And and you brought this question up uh, at the beginning of our discussion. You said what what was the what was the how do you get the club to buy into something? Well, the intent of Pots and Temple, the statement says. Nothing will be done to this golf course that doesn't represent what Pasa Tempo and McKenzie's uh, strategies, designs, and intent was. And I used the old aerial. I used the ground photos. And that was my intent from the beginning. That was the club's intent from the beginning. And when we go back and do the teeing grounds uh, next year, uh, we will add one more step to the restoration of Pasa Tempo. And people will just love the look. They still they already like the look. What do you what am I kidding myself? But we're just adding one more step to that to complete Mackenzie's dream, uh, where he passed away, where his house was located on the sixth hole, as you well aware, and it really is a, 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 a hall of fame of holes for Mackenzie. So we we've talked about a lot of great golf courses, and I and we've actually touched on on the idea of scale and and design. Do you think it's a necessity for, you know, really great golf design? Uh, scale? Yep. Uh, I would have said scale was important. Uh, the big scale was important because my favorite golf course, the National Golf Links of America, is big in scale. But there's something about having a border of of uh or a barranca or a a tree line that uh, invokes uh just a a little more touch of of strategy that I don't think you can downplay. So is scale important? Yes. If you were building big scale golf courses, I think they're phenomenal looking and fun to play and look at. Do I do I discount golf courses that are maybe a little bit smaller in scale, maybe a little narrower and, and playing corridor width. Yeah, maybe so. But I think that Pasa Temple on a little smaller scale offers everything that the big scale National Golf Links of America offers. I think you could have both. Uh, I think mixing and matching is, is important. Uh, opening up fairways uh, in between holes. I have a great old photo again on my office wall uh, 
of the first hole of uh, Pasachempo when there were no trees in between one and nine, and it was one big open playing field. That's pretty big scale, and that's what McKenzie was working on when he was working at Pasachempo. You know, trees evolve, they grow up, it narrows the corridors, but I think you could have both. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. I think I, I think it's uh, it. You know, it seems like with the modern new design, everything's going to massive scale, expansive fairways. But at the same time, you know, it, it's kind of the pendulum swinging in each direction. It, it seems like with golf design, and I'm just, you know, I, I, I think it could get too big. You know, we built uh, Old McDonald for Mike Kaiser at the Bannon Dunes Resort. Uh, I was involved with Pacific Dunes as well. Pacific Dunes, a little bit smaller scale. Uh, Old McDonald, much bigger scale. And I can only use those two points of references in my, in, 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 in my discussion with you. For everything that Pacific Dunes offers the golfer in beauty and scale and, and, and playability, McDonald, Old McDonald offers something different. To play the first hole at Old McDonald, upper right fairway, lower left fairway, center fairway with the principal's nose on the double plateau, that's, for me, fun. Links golf at its finest. But when you play, have you played Pacific Dunes in Old Mac, Andy? You know, it's, a, it's another place i got to get to. I, I work too many years in tech and not enough years in golf. Well, you'll get there, and I know you'll 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 love all of the golf course. You'll love trails for what it speaks of beauty. You'll love Bannon Dunes for what David Kidd did in the beginning that allowed us to all work there, and uh, you'll like Pacific Dunes and Old Mac for different reasons. And I love the big scale of Old McDonald. I love almost 5.5 acres of greens similar to St. Andrews in Scotland. I love that scale. I think it offers strategy. I think it offers uh, uh, a different playing field depending on the way the the wind blows. Uh, I think it offers uh, every golfer a chance to make a recovery shot. But for everything Old McDonald offers in big scale, I think uh, Cypress Points. I'm, I'm sorry, Pacific Dunes offers in in a little bit more intimate scale, playing the seventh and eighth holes at Pacific Dunes. Those are fun holes to play, a little more intimate, a little more uh, guarded around the greens, a little more interest. They're all different. Is big scale in vogue right now? Yeah, it probably is. Uh, I saw Coor uh, and Crenshaw's layout at, at the Sand Valley, and I saw David Kidd's layout at Mammoth Dunes. Wow. Have you seen those yet? Yeah, massive. Wow. I mean, Mammoth big. Dunes is, is aptly named. Because aptly named. And should every golf course be Mammoth Dunes? You know, I don't know. But should everybody get a chance to play Coor and Crenshaw's Sand Valley and, and David Kidd's Mammoth Dunes? Absolutely. Because it offers something that maybe a lot of golfers don't ever get to experience, and that is the array of shots you can play without restriction and that's one of the things i learned at st andrews when i first went there is a golf course without borders and 
that has been my stable of design and the way I lay out grassing lines at new golf courses that I'm involved with and the way I lay out presentation grassing lines on restorations. Try not to have a golf course with borders. It's so much more freedom. Mm -hmm. And I hope that uh, people understand what I'm trying to say. Mammoth Dunes and, and Curran Cronshaw, Sand Valley, they give you the freedom to play. And that's so important. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent of width. You know, it's, I, I think it's the, it, and, but what you touched on, I think is important is that the great thing about golf is variety and having variety among design theories is, is really important. I think it is. And I think that for one of the things that I think Mike Kaiser did so wonderful at Bannon Dunes was that he gave you four different golf course in the same setting. And that is variety. And I think Sand Valley is a little different than Mammoth Dunes at, 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 uh, up in Wisconsin. And a lot of the Golden Age designs, for example, the five, my five favorite designs are, have so much different variety. I go from the National Golf Links of America to Prairie Dunes. What a contrast. I go from uh, Pinehurst number 2, one of my top fives, to uh, uh, Cypress Point. What a contrast. And so I think about those golf courses being contrasting and having variety, and that's what the two golf courses I was involved with, the Bannon Dunes, give you, Pacific Dunes and Old Mac. They give you variety. That's all you want. You want something different and not the same old. That does it for part one of our podcast with Jim Urbina. Check in on the feed on Thursday for part two. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.